Hey, do you guys know how uh, difficult and scary it is for some guy to preach anything on Mother's Day? Like, every lady is out there saying, yeah, just tell me something about being a mother. Just, I dare you, just tell me something. Not. I'm going to do what I learned in Sunday school. I'm going to talk about Jesus. Jesus did it. Jesus, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay clear of all that that I don't know much about, other than as a third-party observer. And uh, I am thankful for that. Father, we begin today by laying everything at your feet. Our lives, our mistakes, our scars, our unresolved issues, the uncertainty of the future, we just lay it at your feet. And we trust you. Uh, I'd like to start just by honoring my mother, who is with the Lord now. She grew up on the wrong side. Actually, I was going to say the wrong side of the tracks. She grew up beside all of the railroad tracks. I think there are 25 tracks. She was on the wrong side of town in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Poor as dirt. They were, I don't know, some people, if you want to get disparaging, they were poor white trash, except they weren't all white. My grandmother, or my mom... Her mother was English and her dad was American Indian or First Nations. We don't know what tribe because then at that time in Iowa as well as in Nebraska, the, being a First Nations person was something you tried to hide. It was very sad, but that's the way it was. So we never knew what tribe he was. Uh, but anyway, they made it. They had a very large family. Mom grew up in the middle of that family. So she had no leverage. Um, her older brothers, um, as World War II progressed and they somehow survived, they all fought on that and came back. They actually earned the money to keep her, at least try and get her a pair of shoes each year for school. So it's one of those stories where she had nothing, no leverage. Uh, she worked for an attorney as a teenager. And was so good at what she did, he begged her, he urged her. This was in an era, this was in the, again, late 40s, uh, urged her to go to law school. And her family was so poor, any idea of college was out, just gone. She had no hope. She used the money she earned by doing, functioning as a legal assistant to this attorney with no training, that that's how she actually paid for clothes to finish out high school. Uh, went on and uh, worked in corporations somehow uh, for years. Her signature was the Betty Crocker signature. She had beautiful handwriting. And uh, uh, then it went on. She worked for the military as a civilian employee and uh, uh, would routinely get on the phone. She'd finish the work for the engineers because that, that, they couldn't figure out certain things, and she'd help them write all the reports and correct their math. Can you imagine? before the days of computers, um, correct all of their spelling, and then she'd get on the phone and work and negotiate with admirals at sea by the early communication techniques and with uh, generals as they ordered ammunition or they did things like that. Just an amazing woman. Um, drove 60 miles one way to work on dangerous roads every single day 
She battled migraines that sometime would cause her to go blind in one eye. She'd still go with one eye, never missed work. I don't know how she did it. She was just a robot. When it came to getting things done, she just got it done, didn't complain, just did it. And because of her, my sister and I were able to go to university, get degrees, and, and do well in our lives. But it's because we had a mother that was absolutely amazing, along with a dad. You guys met him. He was amazing. But the thing that struck me about my mom was she had a heart for the downtrodden. Every kid in our neighborhood, and it was a, this was post-World post War II, uh, active, active during the Korea time in the 50s, we lived in one of the boxes that they built for all the people coming back from uh, uh, World War II. And so we had tons of kids and it was the refuge in the safe place. That was a place where all the kids came for safety, was to our house. And uh, I watched her take in broken adults, um, people who were shattered by abuse, uh, abandonment, terrible marriages, stuff like that. I watched her take people in who were the ugly, the disenfranchised, the people nobody wanted to be with. I remember one family had had some real problems. They were just, they were just a broken family um, and really didn't know anything about hygiene, stuff like that. We picked them up, and it was a big family. We'd cram them into our car. It got really fragrant most of the time. We'd take that family to church every week, every single week without fail. No one wanted to sit by them, but we did but that was mom. She took people in. I remember many of her broken friends because of her faithfulness over decades with these people. They became whole. They got their lives back. And she did it quietly, never claimed credit for it. You just didn't know she was in the room until somebody was in need and there she was. So I give credit to a mother who uh, was a hero in my eyes. Alongside a dad who's the same. They were, they were different as night and day. That's probably why they got married. But between the two of them, they gave me a great start in life. I'm very thankful for that. But I can't imagine what life would be like if mom wasn't mom. If she wasn't as steady as she was. It didn't mean she didn't have hard times because she did. But she made it. And um, I wanted to say that just so you know, this Mother's Day is important. I know it's a made-up holiday, um, but it's an important one for a very good reason. So I do honor you. And this, this, uh, this group of people has been a place of refuge for um, women who dreamed of having children and haven't been a mom yet. And we've seen many miracles happen here, not because of us, but because of the one who gives life. And uh, I'm reminded, I want to give hope for anyone like that here. The, the story of David, the story of all of the line of descendants all the way through to Jesus is punctuated powerfully with ladies who are unable to have children for whatever reason. And God miraculously caused things to happen that were beyond logic and beyond the abilities of known medicine at the time or any solution and God did it and some of you in this room have experienced that miracle in your lives some of you ladies God caused you to be a mother supernaturally against all hope and uh, so I want to give you hope 
and also assure you that uh, there are ladies that I've known that never had children in their lives, that the spiritual children were beyond counting because they, again, they took in people who were broken and loved them and nurtured them and became a true spiritual mom. And now we see fruit into other generations because of their faithfulness. So I wanted to say that right off the bat. But again, I want to get back to safety. Uh, in honor of Mother's Day, I am uh, preaching from Juliana's pink uh, iPad because I don't own an iPad. Uh, and my printers are all kawonky right now, which threw me into a state of panic. I have, I have climbed through the technological world all the way to approximately 1980. Uh, <laughs> At that point, everything stopped, and so using an iPad scares the far out of me because these screens go blank half the time, and that means I have to fumble around and try and get back. And if I dare touch the wrong thing, I could be preaching to you from Vogue magazine. <laughs> the title this morning is, We Are the Evidence of God's Existence. And the scripture today, if you have Bibles, iPads, iPhones, um, any of the various competitors to those that are equally good, by the way. But John 17, find your way to John 17. This is one of the, the most, there are several high priestly chapters in the Gospels. This may be the highest of the high priestly chapters. This is where Jesus, that's the mediator between God and man. This is where he steps up as a high priest, the ultimate high priest. He's the one who makes things right between God and man. He is the communion table itself. He's the bridge. And so in John 17, we see him saying his last teaching moments, his last words of his teachings in his entire earthly life, except when he returns as the risen Son of God. But this is his last, these are the last and most important words he says as God-man. Before his resurrection, before his glorification. So... The rule of last words applies here. For the thinking people in this world who still have a mind to think at the end, their final words are very often absolutely vital, especially if they feel a mission and a calling to transfer something to those who will follow after them. And nobody had a mission like that, like Jesus. And so these are his final words in chapter John 17. And these words that he says are crucial. I'm going to read some of them. Let's go to, uh, I'm going to hit verse 15 in John 17 and verse 18. And then we'll skip to uh, four more verses. Verse 15, John 17, 15 says this in the New American Standard. He's talking directly to the Father in the presence of his disciples. They're gathered around him. And he says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world. But to keep them away from the evil one. Verse 18. Just as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. Now I want to skip to verse 20 through 23. I'm not asking on behalf of these alone. He's talking about the disciples around him. But also for those who believe in me through their word. Who does that include? Us. 
We have all believed the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because of the words the disciples have passed on to us. The the importance of this is to say, hey guys, this isn't about those guys back in the old days who had it all together and who were perfect and walked on clouds all the time and worked miracles everywhere they went. None of that's true. What's true is Jesus is saying words and praying prayers and making statements that are true for you and me in these seats today in 2021 as true as they were in the first century. So he goes on, and this is crucial for us. He says, I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's his definition of one, not some cutesy. This is, he's talking on a level we need to understand. We need to cut through our cultural things and understand Jesus is speaking the ultimate truth of all time. This is one truth that goes beyond limitations of time and space. This is his will. So that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Evidence. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them. This is the glory. So that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me. Now listen to this one. That they may be perfected in unity. The literal translation is, so that they may be perfected into one, a work in progress. We have that on the board outside in the hall. We're not there yet, but God never gave us permission to sit back. We need to yield to his work to perfect us. And the way we're perfected is as he makes us one. And that work in process is painful It sometimes seems violent because he makes us sit by the jerk. We're trying to run from church after church to get away from. Uh, I don't know if you ever noticed, but the pain in the katootie that you ran from five years ago from first church, followed you to second church, followed you to third church. The faces may have changed, but the pain in the katootie didn't change. You always get the person with the ego. You always get the person who's first. You always get the person who's always right. Don't look at me that way. Uh, you always get the person, you know, you just get the, the people that drive you absolutely crazy. I'm not talking about your spouse. But anyway, get back to these scriptures. This is Jesus talking. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them just as you loved me. Now, Jesus never speaks empty words. He never speaks casually. When he's speaking here, he's speaking for effect. These words echo through all eternity. These words are the mission. He came and totally fulfilled the mission his father gave him. And then he passed the mission on to us. He didn't pass it on to people who wear their collars backwards. He didn't pass it on solely to people who go to Bible college or to seminary. Those things equip us more effectively to get certain things done. But if that's true, then the majority, if not all, of the 12 who gathered around him were disqualified. These guys were blue-collar people. These guys were crooks. These guys were failed people. These guys had issues. 
Two of the brothers had a mom who was always leveraging and pushing for them to be number one. She was the one that went to the principal of the school, say, why aren't my kids first? First in band, first in on the football team, first. Why aren't my kids? I mean, they had that problem. You can imagine how that kind of played with their head once in a while. I mean, we had, we had a guy that was in collusion with the Romans to cheat the Jews, his own people, a tax collector. And it gets worse and worse. That's a whole other message there. But the whole point is, he, God gave him, God the Father, according to Jesus' own words, gave him this collection of clowns to take over the world. And that's the way God works. Paul actually put it into words later when he talked about God hasn't chosen many great or rich or powerful. He chooses losers. He chooses broken people so that when they accomplish their mission, the glory goes to him and not to us. But we forget this. We come to a church wanting us all to be perfect and um, we just want heaven on earth. Well, heaven on earth begins with hell on earth encountering the Savior, the Lord of love, and being changed. I, I always wondered why I was happiest when I was in a church where I had, well, this is an era during the mosh pit era, but I loved having people in the front row, front row of green hair and chains down to the floor dancing to the Lord. And I love having someone in a suit right beside me and someone that could buy the building, the land, and half the city in one section sitting right beside somebody who was wearing, you know, their hand-me-down shoes from an older brother. I love the fact that all of those people could be in one place, in one accord, worshiping the same Lord, and they would lay down their lives for each other. And I have encountered that, and I've encountered that kind of heart here with this family. It's not easy because we do get on each other's nerves. My point is I don't think it was a coincidence that God the Father gave Jesus such a mixture to work with. And none of them were qualified. I fit into that group. I feel good there. I feel great. I can even preach from a pink iPad. Hoping it doesn't go out on me. Hallelujah. The Bible is a transparent book. That's one of the things I love about it. It shows all of the the wrinkles and the clinging sins and the issues of the people God uses. Because I've said it before, but the only kind of people God has to use is cracked pots. Just cracked people. That's all he has. Other than Jesus, everything from there is a slide down the slippery slope. We're all messed up. But the good news is the Lord doesn't want us to stay there. He gives us the ability to move beyond that point, and he does it in a loving way by his spirit. And he uses moms much of the time. I don't know if you noticed, moms, how much of your time and breath is spent trying to teach your kids to love? Don't kill your sister. No, don't stab her with a knife. No, don't throw that brick. No, don't. Don't push her off the roof. Um, You know, it's just little things that moms deal with. And you expend an, a vast amount of en- energy for about, well, if you're fortunate, 18 years. <clears throat> but actually it goes beyond that. Trying to teach your kids how to walk the love walk and trying to introduce them to a living relationship with Jesus. What Jesus is asking us to do is not natural. 
it goes against human nature. By our very nature, we look after number one. You don't have to teach a kid how to do that. They do it on their own, some more than others. Some kids, especially if they, we model it in front of them, they kind of have a servant's heart, and they actually might hurt themselves because they're trying so hard to serve others. And I'm thankful for every child that's like that. For most of you, if you have two children, one will be like that, and the other one, well, will be more human. And uh, all of us need God's help to pull this off. But I'm telling you, the world in its current state is a picture of what we are really like on the inside. I don't agree with everything that some of the psychologists have come up with, particularly Freud. But, I, you know, some of the issues that they've come up with came from observation, and I think they're halfway right. I don't buy into the whole thing, but when you talk about, I don't know if you ever studied the id and uh, the ego and all that stuff, basically he's talking about we have a lot of things going on inside of us. Some of them not so good. Some of them we don't even want to acknowledge exist. And uh, the fortunate thing about the Holy Spirit is he sees it all. He knows it all. There's no way to hide it from him. He's not embarrassed by it. You don't need to be. And he will dip into the deepest part of our inner brokenness and bring healing quietly, gently, sometimes a little more forcefully. But he brings wholeness to us if we yield to him. And he will use other people. I think my encouragement to you uh, is that we need to yield to the work of God. I want to just quickly cover some things, and then I'm going to call up the worship team again. Apostle Paul got into some of this later. He was one of the people that technically, by man's definition, would have been qualified to be a disciple of Jesus. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel in the Old Testament terminology, I believe, at that time when it says that Paul or Saul at that time who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, that's an old uh, uh, Hebraism or a Hebrew terminology meaning he was the number one disciple, the heir apparent. He was the prince who was going to ascend to the throne. Gamaliel to this day is one of the most revered rabbis in all of Judaism. You will find that name and one other as above all rabbis. And so you go throughout the United States, Europe, and around the world, you will find a synagogue called the Synagogue of Gamaliel. He was the chief lawgiver of Israel. And Paul sat at his feet. You could not. Paul also, Saul was actually, we believe, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70. And to become a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to memorize most of the Old Testament from memory because you're the equivalent of a Supreme Court judge and the equivalent of a, you know, a chief member of Congress or the Senate because you judged law, you made law, you interpreted law, you did all that stuff. So this guy was brilliant, and yet God, when God took him, he kind of broke him and remade him so that he called all of his training junk. It wasn't because he drew on it, but it had to be remade and reformed in the light of his walk with Jesus. So with all that, he gets in there, and in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, is is his version of what we're talking about. Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
because that's what it takes. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The reason the world does not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reason they believe it's too good to be true, because we have not done this. We, the church, over time, we have fought and squabbled. We have had elders step out in the front lawn and have public fistfights that the police had to break up. Not this church specifically, what's happened in the region. Uh, we've had church splits over what color to paint the hat, the hat rack. We have had all kinds of crazy splits so that we have, you know, 3rd, 4th, 52nd, and 82nd church of whatever. We've just split and split and split and split because we cannot get along. I encourage you that being a part of a church family is much like a marriage. You start off with with a wonderful celebration and everything seems to be perfect, but it's the commitment that you make in the beginning that carries you through to the end. And you work through your stuff because you're going to hurt each other. You're going to discover weaknesses you didn't know were there. You're going to discover deep issues that were beautifully covered up or that you carefully ignored in the in the throes of love. And the key is to stick through it, work through it, and be partners to work through your weaknesses and to polish your strengths together. Same thing in the body of Christ. This is the laboratory of the Lord. This is where the Holy Spirit strikes stone against stone, making sparks. It's also where he perfects us and teaches us to love each other. I love approaching difficult things surrounded by brothers and sisters who bear the marks of combat. They've dealt with their issues. They've fought through stuff head to head against each other and still came out arm in arm. That's what families do. You have your fight. You fight. Some of them are not, you know, knock down, drag out fights. But your commitment is that you will leave the room together having come to some kind of consensus. And the challenge of the Lord for us is to learn how to do that. My dad um, came to the Lord right after he returned from World War II in a little Pentecostal church in North Kansas City, Missouri. And... uh, I don't know how it happened, but it's just that pastor is the one that led him to the Lord. So dad planted where he kind of was reborn. And uh, they had a lot of good there, and I still hold my, my history there in great value. And I can step into any Pentecostal church and relate to the people immediately. But there are some things that weren't so good and actually shared some common things with some other churches at the time, too. The era was the uh, 1950s and the early 60s. We were at the height of um, the Cold War. Everybody was sure the world was going to end. We were having nuclear bomb drills in elementary school and junior high where we would put us under the desks. I know that's we were following the science, okay? That's all I can say. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but the teachings that began to sweep through the church, beginning in the late 40s and early 50s and 60s, was fear-based. And I say the church, I really mean um, 
parts of the evangelical church and the Pentecostal church. In particular, at that thing, one particularly damaging thing was uh, heavily fear-based views of the end times. And so for about five years, when I my mind began to work at a preteen and early teen level, I started listening to what the preachers were saying. They were always looking for the Antichrist because most of the sermons, especially for guest evangelists, were, came right out of Revelation. It was a sure thing. Offerings were good, the whole thing. Um, and the primary candidate back then very between whoever was uh, premier of the Soviet Union at the time and the Pope. Now, the Pope uh, of the church at that time primarily was the chief winner. That was the, they were positive and absolutely sure that you could plug that name in into the Antichrist, and so they taught that way. We have to be careful what our kids listen to. Everything must be taken through the filter of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Covenant is there for our value and our training and our teaching. But that doesn't mean that everything in the Old Covenant applies today because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. Well, the teachings, if teachings are not taken through the filter of Jesus, who is the manifested, visible picture of what the Father is like, then you can get into... Racism, bigotry, hatred, division, violence. And you can justify it all by using the scriptures that aren't taken in context and taken through the filter of Jesus. So, to my shame, I'm going to admit something to you, although the Lord worked it out. It got in my head so much that... One day, in a large field separating the private Catholic school from our neighborhood, I actually began to lay in wait to attack a Catholic boy. I don't know what was in my mind. The kid probably could have beat the snot out of me anyway. But anyway, there I was contemplating this. And then the Holy Spirit got hold of me. Because my parents never taught me that, and they never went along with that. Remember, I told you what my mom's like. If anything, she would have gotten alongside that boy and fought on her behalf. Definitely would have uh, introduced some special heat to my backside if she knew. But the Holy Spirit took care of it. Because while I was waiting and watching this Catholic boy walk, really it was fear that was operating. Uh, The Holy Spirit dealt with me. We ended up walking together back home and talking. And the Lord began to change me and show me the the danger of just accepting things without questioning and balancing them. What is Jesus like this? And that led to a lifelong pattern of working and building bridges and meeting people and ministering in places that were so unlike me and unlike my background. And it really brought more balance. I still have goofy spots where I have to watch it, you know. But any of us can go crazy. Any of us can get some thinking in our head that has nothing to do with Jesus and actually think we're doing God a favor. How many wars have been started or maintained because we thought we're doing God a favor? By getting rid of a particular group of people or dealing with them in a wrong way. Our world is at the pinnacle of that kind of thinking right now. Everybody takes a side. There's no give or take. 
that inevitably leads to something that's destructive. Guess who God plants in the middle of that? He always has. He planted his people so that we can be an evidence of hope past that kind of insanity. We can be the people that dare to reach across and build bridges and love people. You can do it without compromising your inner beliefs. But you know what? I've always, I discovered this at university, my first year of university, when I was surrounded by people who believed totally different from me and actually wanted to actively destroy everything that I believed in. And I discovered that if I knew that I knew that I knew that God is love and that he loved me and that he actually loved them, I could, I could actually stand and listen to someone talk to me about Hare Krishna Buddha, Satanism, I can listen to their entire argument and end up by saying, I really hear you, but God really loves you, and so do I. End of argument. I want to encourage you guys. This is my final words to you. He asked us to love each other love our neighbors, and even to love our enemies. It's the most powerful evidence the world will ever have that God really exists, that he really cares, and he still works miracles. Apostle Paul is trying to get that across. We, we all have spiritual uh, ADHD, I think, half the time. We go through, we start in 1 Corinthians 13, and we love all the pretty jewelry because it's beautiful, all those descriptions of what love's like. We just get lost in it and we forget the last thing where he says, love is greater than all. Do you realize love is greater and will outlive every gift God has ever given to the church except the gift of eternal life? It's greater than, than the gift of miracles. It's greater than the gifts of healings. It's greater than tongues. It's greater than interpretation and prophecy. It's greater than all that stuff. In fact, without love, that stuff's useless. It's religion headed toward hell. All of that stuff without love becomes pride. And it always has the poison of pride mixed in with whatever good it does. So I want to encourage you guys, not because you're bad guys, because you're very human like me. I wish I could say I follow this all the time. I don't. I, uh, I have a good grip on stupid. And I, I really want to lose that grip. I want to get that slippery thing and just let go of stupid and maybe walk smart for a while. The love walk is smart. And if you guys can stand to love each other, actually, you should really crave it now after COVID. We've been separated, you know, a forced separation for so long. I encourage you to uh, each day look for opportunities to be kind, to take a step more than you would normally take, to love the unlovable, to defend the people who are being attacked. We have those opportunities every day. They may not be big. They may not be dramatic. But they can be life-changing just by being the Jesus in the moment 
And when you dare to step out and do that, you're going to find the Holy Spirit. That presence of God will rise up in you and fill your mouth and give you a love you never knew you had. And maybe even have you operate in some miracles and some signs and wonders, stuff like that. It happens when you take a risk to follow Jesus because that's exactly where he would be. I just encourage you guys, our church, yeah, we take a hit with COVID just like most of the other churches. And we don't necessarily uh, preach or, or push the most popular things, and that's okay. There's places for other churches to do that, and it's fine. We're not better than other churches. What we're responsible for is to do what he's called us to do. And uh, we sometimes borrow from some of the folks that minister to us a lot. But he's called us to walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus and be like Jesus and love the unlovable like Jesus. To make a difference. To be patient when we'd really rather not. And... uh, it's okay to be human and to mess up because you're going to. It's not a if. It's a guaranteed how many times a day. But the Lord just covers us and loves us the right way, kind of like moms do. If moms were legalistic, none of us would be alive today. Thankful for the mercy my mom showed me, even though she let me have it many times. But after many, 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 many warnings. You guys, I love you very much, and I'm not the only one. And I have been the recipient of tremendous love and support from folks in this room. Some who are no longer with us. Just loving just because. Didn't have to earn it. Didn't Definitely didn't have to deserve it. You are an incredible group. My whole point is for us to remember the greatest gift that God has given us. And that is the gift of loving one another, of loving our neighbor who isn't in our circle, and of even loving and praying for our enemies. That one's tough, especially in America. Hey, my, my favorite genre of movies is the... Kick the bad guy in the Katootie movie. I love those kind of things, which is exact opposite of where the heart of Jesus is. So I'm having to retrain this old guy. Jesus wants us to transform this broken world with a healing love. He can put Humpty Dumpty back together. He's the only one. Hey, look what he's done with us. My goodness. We've come so far from where we were love you guys. Let's stand. I just want to pray a blessing over you. Father, thank you for the family. We're quite a family. We're about as different from each other as we possibly could be. But Lord, if there's people who are even more different, bring them in. Teach us to love each other more and more and more. Father, give us opportunities to make a difference in our neighbor's lives, not because we want them as notches on our gun just because. Teach us how to love with no strings attached, no manipulation, no game playing. Teach us how to love people the way you loved us. We ask it in faith, knowing that you're faithful. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. On this Mother's Day, love your mother, and if she's already with the Lord, 
and love those around you because they need your love like crazy.